Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how Noah found what he was looking for, which was grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he made his life so different and sold out that he wasn't like the rest of the world. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, we thank you so much that these histories that happened in the past are not lost. We thank you, Lord, that the history of how you worked with man, how you saved man, how you pleaded with man, how you don't want any man to end in hell and want all men to go to heaven, that all of those histories have been preserved for us in this book. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity this morning to study your word. And we ask, Lord, that you open our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 6, you follow along, please. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also that when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. From the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and they behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou pitch in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, last week, considering what God said in verse 3, which is just an astounding statement, he said that his spirit shall not always strive with man. We saw that there were two forces inside the believer, the God's spirit and the flesh. That's not true of the lost. That's not true of the person who doesn't believe. There's only one force at work there. That's the flesh. We saw last week these several wonderful names for the spirit of God. We saw he's called the spirit of life the spirit of the living God, and maybe best of all, they're all good, but the very interesting good one is called the spirit of Christ. And we saw how when we become children of God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his spirit, takes up residence inside of us, which is an amazing truth. Paul never got over that. 
And we saw how the Spirit of God is like a garden in us. And the garden reminded us of the Garden of Eden. So like in the Garden of Eden, there was the trees that produced fruit. So like in our garden, there is a Spirit of God. He also produces the fruit of the Spirit. We saw that that was love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. On the other hand, we saw that the flesh is like a factory with all of its cranking noise. And it doesn't produce fruit. It produced works, works of the flesh. We saw last week how that we determine how much fruit comes from the garden. God does not determine how much fruit comes from us. We do. Why is that? Because we saw that as with the garden, the key was how much the ground is worked. How much the ground is worked. The ground by watering and by feeding and by weeding. From that, we saw that that determines not only how much fruit comes from the garden, and in the same way determines how much of the fruit of the Spirit comes from us. Just like God put the trees in the Garden of Eden to give fruit, that was God's responsibility, then the trees would give fruit. God has put within our heart the Holy Spirit to yield fruit. But then God charged Adam and he told him, your responsibility to guard and keep this garden. That's what you have to do. Our responsibility to prepare our hearts. We saw how that's our responsibility. It rests on us, our heart ground. And we saw how it's our job. And we make our heart what's called good and honest. That's what the Bible says, good and honest heart. When we hear the word of God and we keep or obey the word of God. And when we do that, then we'll deal with personal sin by confessing it and forsaking it. When we do that, then we'll deal with suffocating cares that come to us and worries by turning our attention away from them and our focus to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do that, We'll pull out the weeds that are overreaching and they're seductive and they're draining and they're distractions. And all of that comes as we focus on work and on pleasures and anything that turns us away from God. So we turn our attention and our focus back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. We make the decisions and we do the work that results in that. So we determine within this conflict that's going on inside of us, who's going to win the battle, the spirit or the flesh. And it all is determined by who we decide to feed and who we decide to starve. If we feed the flesh and starve the spirit, the flesh wins. If we feed the spirit and starve the flesh, the spirit wins. What's happened here in our chapter that we're studying is the sons of God fed the flesh, starved the spirit, so the flesh won. And that's exactly what took place here, primarily in the basic decision that they made, which started it all, which was who they decided to marry. Who to marry. They starved the spirit, fed the flesh, because they saw they were beautiful women, and the conclusion was... In verse 3, that the sons of God made the wrong decision, and so God called them, he also is flesh. The flesh won. The spirit was tired of striving. 
with them over this issue. So we saw from verse 5 that those sons of God lost the battle, first of all, in their mind. The battle was lost in their mind when it says that the thoughts were only evil continually. And that's our battle. Our battle takes place first in our mind. And we saw from verse 5 that then they lost the battle to influence the earth. They lost the battle to be salt in the earth. And so what happened? Wickedness became great in the earth. From verse 11, we saw that the sons of God lost the battle to stop corruption in the earth. And twice God said that the earth was corrupt before him. And then the next step after they lost the battle to stop corruption was a natural slide to losing the battle as far as violence goes. And the earth became filled with violence. There was violence. Show me a society that is morally corrupt and I'll show you a society that is violent. Because moral corruption goes before violence. Now, in the midst of all of this horrible scene and horrible situation that take place, we have this wonderful statement standing out in a stark contrast to all the corruption, all the violence, all the wickedness, all the evil thoughts continually. And we have this statement. And it says, Noah was just man and perfect in his generations. This man Noah, he just stands right up. He's so different from everyone else on the earth because when the whole earth is consumed with just pleasing themselves, they're self-indulgent and they're becoming more and more in that direction. Does it make me feel good? Do it. Corruption, violence. And Noah decides that he's going to go looking for something that no one else was looking for. And that was the grace of God. And verse 8 tells us Noah found what he was looking for. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then Noah made his life by decisions and by diligence. He made his life so different from the rest of this corrupt, violent world that he lived in. He made his life to be sold out for God. He was flat out, sold out to God. He was 100% red hot for God. And what was so amazing about Noah was that he was sold out for God in this world that was so non-conducive for God. There weren't churches on every street corner at that time. (laughs) That's what's emphasized to us in verse 9 when it says, in his generations, in these generations of corruption and violence, What kind of generation are they talking about? The worst you can imagine. And Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. There wasn't a half-hearted bone we saw in Noah's body. He was wholehearted. And he looked around and he not only saw the line of Cain become more and more bold in their sin against God, what he saw was the ruination of the sons of God. He saw the moral corruption of the line that was supposed to be holding the standard. He saw lots of constitutional amendments. (laughs) Noah did. And this allowed sin to thrive. And Noah lived in a changing day, something we're experiencing right now. But Noah himself refused to go with the flow. He refused to change. 
And so verse 9 could be written like this. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. Noah was standing alone in his generations, which he was. He was alone. That's exactly the day we live in today. We're living in a changing day. We're living in a day when sin is becoming more and more accepted. Homosexuality that used to be commonly viewed, like God views it, something to be abhorred, today is becoming more and more accepted as an acceptable way of living. The times, they are a-changing. Now, we live in a day when homosexuals are coming out of the closet and Christians are going in the closet. And that's a day that was described over a hundred years ago by Andrew Bonar when he said, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. I looked for the world and I found it in the church. So when we look at Noah, we just admire him because he just stayed unchanged. He didn't change. When, with good men who once stood for the truth, and righteousness, they were now yielding to sin, they were yielding to compromise, but not Noah. He just stood there. He was all alone. So we want to know, okay, how did he do it? How did Noah stand alone for God? How is that possible? How did he do it? Well, God tells us no secret, and, and that's in the second part of verse 9. It says he walked with God. Noah knew if he was not going to be corrupted, if he was going to not be like everyone else around him, that he needed to orient his life so that when God looked at it, he could say, Noah, he lives like he walks with God. He's a man who walks with God. Noah knew, and we have to know this too, it's not enough to come to church just once a week on Sunday or some other meeting. Our lives have got to be a walk with God. Tom, today we looked at Genesis 6-9, where it says Noah walked with God. What exactly does it mean to walk with God? Yes, and this was given to us for the reason that God wants us to be just down-to-earth, on-the-ground, rubber-meets-the-road, practical. So the question, what exactly does it mean when Noah walked with God? It's a good question. We saw that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. It was specifically stated that Enoch walked with God. Now, what does it mean if we look at these three, Adam and Enoch, especially Enoch and Noah, what we find in here is there's a measure of honesty in their walk. In other words, they were honest before God. They weren't living a life of duplicity. They weren't saying one thing and doing something else or saying one thing and thinking something else. They were honest before God. They were transparent before God, and they were devout. They were 100% sold out for God. They were God's men. They talked about God. They thought about God. They worshiped God. God was an integral part of their lives. It's sort of like if you touch them, then they talked about God. And that's what it means to walk with God. And they, everything they did in their lives, they were doing as if they were being watched by God. God was such a reality to them that, as we've said before, they were living in the city of London, in other words, where there's more 
closed-circuit TV cameras than any other city in the world. And so if people in London, when they're out on the streets, they know they're being watched by the police. This, this is the same with Noah and Enoch. They walked as if they were constantly under the eye of God. God was looking at them all the time, and they lived that way. And so in living that way, it wasn't just a life of, of oh, i got to get away because God's watching me. Or No, they, they knew that they were under the eye of God, and they made a conscious decision that their lives would be a lives of communion with God. They would take those times when they would be, if they would ever be standing in line, and they say, now's my time to talk to God. When they'd be driving, they weren't having cars. But anyways, for us, we drive in our cars, and we and to walk with God means that we talk to God when we drive in the cars. We get in the car, we're going to go someplace, we understand that there's danger on the road, so we stop and we ask God to give us safety on the roads. That's what it means to walk with God. If something, and God forbid, should happen to us, our first thought is, thank you, Lord, that there wasn't more damage. That's what it means to walk with God. When they are, when their mind goes to neutral, their mind never goes to neutral. Their mind always points toward God, just like a plant points itself toward the light. And they were always thinking, what is the will of God? What does God want from me in life? And they were conforming themselves to God. In other words, that verse where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice and be not conformed to this world. In other words, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And so they were, and they were as they walked with God, they were letting God squeeze them, so to speak. They wanted to be squeezed into the into God's mold. They wanted to be squeezed into the will of God. And, and, and they wanted to, at the end of their lives and through their lives, they wanted to do that, which we've talked about in the past, make God happy. They wanted to please God. They wanted to show God what you've given to me in life. I've used it so that I can get an A mark from you on my report card, so that I can be a proved by you when I when I stand before you, when I am standing before you. All of that is encompassed in walking with God. And today, Tom, you talked about how Noah found what he was looking for, which was grace in the eyes of the Lord. By that, Noah was wanting to live in the grace of God. So what does it mean to practically live in the grace of God? Isn't that a great phrase where it says, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and then drawing that out to its other end, which is to say that he was looking for the grace of God. He didn't just stumble under the grace of God, but he was looking for the grace of the God, grace of God. So when we ask that question, what did it mean that Noah was looking for grace in the eyes of the Lord? And what did it mean when Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? And what did it mean when Noah wanted to find grace in the eyes of the Lord? And it means, as, as you've said, he wanted to live in the grace of God. So what does it mean practically to live in the grace of God? There's a great verse in Romans 5.21 that has a phrase in there that is just, that's a keeper. And it goes like this, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. This word that Paul has used here is so wonderful. It's the word reign or reigned. And he's talking about 
having us to understand what it means to live in the grace of God. It means to live under the reign of grace. And so he's explaining to us, us, Paul is saying to us, look, as sin reigned unto death. And so he's saying, you remember how your life was before when sin reigned over you? And so now we want to take a little bit of uh, a thought time and just ask the question, what does it mean to reign? Reign has two parts to it. First, it's a period of time. It's a period of time during which there is a king or there's a queen or there's some potentate and he rules over a nation. So so there's the two concepts. It's a period of time for a specific rulership. That rulership means the control over. It means the domination over. It means the power over. That's what's encompassed in the word reign, a period of rule, a period of time. So he's seeing here like you had a period in your time. You want, if you would like to call it BC, before Christ, before you received the Lord Jesus Christ, that was the time when sin reigned over you. That was the period of time of sin, sin reigning. That was the time when sin controlled you. That was the time when sin influenced you. That was the time when sin dominated you. That was the time when sin created this lust within you that you had to, like an addiction, constantly feed, constantly satisfy. It just didn't leave you alone. That was the time, Paul says, of the reign of sin in your life. And then he says, inasmuch as you understand that, you understand that that was a period of time when sin was president. You understand that. So now look on the other side, the A the after the Lord Jesus Christ chapter in your life, when now it's not a case of sin reigning, but it's a case of grace reigning. You're in a new rulership. There's been a new a, a new administration come to power. This is the administration of grace. And now you're in this period of rule. You're not in the period of rule when sin reigned. Now you're in the period of rule when grace reigns. And so therefore, grace now has control over your life. Grace has the influence over your life. Grace is the dominating thought and power over your life. What does it mean to have grace reigning in your life? It means that we constantly are thinking that the law came by Moses, but grace came by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God. We live on the grace of God like a baby lives on milk. In other words, we're not judged because of our sin, because of the grace of God. We have been saved from hell because of the grace of God. We've been, we've been adopted out of the of the orphanage of sin into the family of God by the grace of God. It's just like when the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jehovah Jesus was speaking to Israel, and he got to this subject where he says, I want you to consider why God chose you. Why did God choose the Jewish people? And he said, first of all, he said, God did not choose you because you were the more numerous of people. Fact, you were the fewest. You would not choose you because 
because you just happen to be a people that would never complain. Fact, you start in complaining. Did not choose you because you were grateful. Fact, you weren't grateful, etc., etc. But the point is, is that God chose Israel because he said he chose to set his love on Israel, on the Jewish people. That's grace. That grace speaks about what's inside of God, not what's inside of the Jewish people. Grace speaks about what's inside of God, his love, not what's in us. Grace doesn't look at works that I can do to get to heaven. Grace looks at what God did to get me to heaven by coming and dying on a cross for my sins. Grace all focuses on God. When you say grace, it's not about us. It's about God. When you say grace, it's all that we've received, and it reflects itself back to us in a form where we are grateful and we are appreciative for what God did. And so because of that, we therefore are praising God. We're thanking God. We're in this state of appreciation to God. That's what it means when grace reigns over our hearts. It focuses us on what the Lord Jesus Christ did in buying for us what we could not afford to buy, which was eternal life, in giving to us which we had absolutely nothing inherently within us, which is the righteousness of the righteousness of God. That's a righteousness which we are clothed in by virtue of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and willingly shed his blood with every blow of the hammers that nailed his hands to the tree. We could say, we look at each hammer blow and we say, by the grace of God, he allowed himself to be impaled onto this tree. By the grace of God, he allowed his blood to be shed for us. That's, and the more we live under that consciousness, then we live more under the reign of grace. Thank you for joining us today. Now, do you have a Jewish friend or know of a Jewish person that needs to be reached with the gospel? Would you like to give them a free gospel gift from Tom Cantor or have one sent to them? Well, you can contact Israel Restoration Ministries and the Friendship with God radio program by phone by calling us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. And we can get a Tom Cantor testimony DVD and book into your hands or into their hands so that you can reach them with the gospel in these last days. Now, many of us know a Jewish person, whether it's a lawyer, doctor, businessman, friend, neighbor, coworker, or some acquaintance we know that's Jewish that we want to reach with the gospel. So again, call us today, 1-800-247-3051. You can also purchase Tom Cantor's materials at friendshipwithgod.org on our online bookstore or israelrestoration.org, either website. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.